Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome to season two, episode 27 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, one we're calling Addressing Capital Needs in a Rising Rate Environment. And you know, if we're talking banking, that means I'm going to bring the little man with the big microphone on today. That's right. The Walker is going to be joining me. Today is going to be a little bit longer episode. So for those of you who listen to our podcast, uh, eating a sandwich between patients or on the treadmill, you might be in this one for a little while. I urge you to brew another cup of coffee, get your pad and pen ready, because it'll surely be a note-taking episode. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and I am joined today by my co-founding partner here at Polaris, none other than DeWalker Sinha. It's been a little while since we had him on the podcast, but suffice to say, I think this subject matter is all in his wheelhouse. DeWalker, thanks for joining me today, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you back behind the microphone. He's a man of few words, as you well know, until it turns to the subject of banking. And yes, today is about banking, but it's banking in a different context. I don't know if you've been following any of the news lately, probably sure you have, but everybody is reading about the Fed increasing rates and the looming uh, prospect of a recession. There's a lot of turmoil in the financial markets. You hear it bandied about relative to what's it going to do to, to multiples in our industry? What's going to happen to the overall economy? What about borrowing? What about refinancing my home? We're not going to get into all that today, but we're going to get into a lot of stuff today. This is going to be a longer episode. It's going to have a lot of meat. It's going to have a lot of detail, and I think you're going to get a hell of a lot out of it. So let me set the table real quick and give some context here. And then I'm going to flip it to DeWalker on a handful of questions that he's going to hit out of the park. As I said, there is a lot of uh, news around the rising costs of funds, uh, and we're probably not done with that. But when you hear things like the Fed increasing rates 75 basis points and people are in a panic over it, let's put this into a little bit of context, okay? So the federal funds rate right now is about 1.58%. If we rewind the tape two years back to February 2020, right before COVID hit, do you know what the Fed rate was then? 1.58%. The same damn thing. All right. So obviously COVID hit the entire globe shut down in terms of economic activity. We all weathered the storm and now we're back better than ever. But let's talk about the fact that the federal funds rate today is at the same point that it was before we went into COVID in terms of a global shutdown. 
in February of 2019, a year before COVID, it was about 2.44%. And we're not that far off of that as we look forward into what rates might be in the next 6 to 12 months. So we're not in uncharted waters here. There's a lot of context around this um, that should give people, frankly, a little bit of comfort level and shouldn't give them any reason to worry. That's not what the nightly news gets paid to do. They get paid to put you in a panic, make sure you're watching the news and learn how the sky is going to fall. And when it does fall, it's probably going to fall right on you. Well, we're here to set the record straight a little bit. And the first point in setting it straight is to give context of where we find ourselves today versus where we were when we entered COVID and where we were the year before COVID even hit. It was an election year and where we might be in the coming months as it relates to the summer and the second half of the year. This is not a point to panic. It's not a point really to worry. And it's certainly not a point that we find ourselves in uncharted waters like we've never been here before. Quite the contrary, we have, and it wasn't too long ago where we were here. So let me take a pause on that and share the mic a little bit with my esteemed partner because this is his world that he grew up in. And DeWalker, let me start by asking the general question, how does borrowing overall impact our core client? You want to take it from here? Uh, yeah, thank you. So I think, you know, as so we look at the current, uh, I'll kind of break it down in two different aspects, uh, you know, and, and touch base on one of it later on. Uh, in our podcast, but in as far as cost of capital going up, I mean, I think if you secured capital or refinance your capital uh, during uh, 2020 or even 2021, um, I think uh, you know your cost of capital is fairly aggressive, and um, that allowed people to you know kind of restimulate the economy and get back invested in the market. And you know, I think some aspects one could argue, you know, the increased consumer spending got us back out of COVID. Um, and you know, to some aspects, is related to some to some of the inflation where we are today. Uh, but so, cost of capital two years ago significantly lower, as you just alluded to. You know, pre-COVID, it was higher than than it is today as far as Fed's funds rate. And we'll kind of go through, you know, different indexes that are out there. Uh, I mean, we're just about 1.58 percent today. Um, you know, even if we went by another 75 basis points, 100 basis points to where it was in 19, um, I think you know that's fine. I mean, I think you know. Uh, pre-pandemic, we were on an upswing on you know, Fed funds rate and different indexes out there. Uh, and we had a temporary low to re-stimulate the economy. And I, I think, you know, generally clients have to get comfortable or audience members have to get comfortable with, you know, if rates today, two years ago were three and a half percent. Today, they're probably, you know, five and a half percent. And a year down the road, they're probably going to be six and a half percent, maybe higher. Um, and it's, it's still a very good you know, pricing market. And I got into banking uh, when the prime was 9.5%. Um, and so I've kind of seen those markets where cost of capital was, and the commercial market was you know, 9 to 12% uh, for borrowing capital for commercial uh, transaction. Real estate mortgages were at 8%. So I, mean, I, I don't think we're there yet, but I think it's, it's you know, cost of capital is going to go up. And I think people need to understand that as your cost of capital goes up, your purchasing power is is going to be impacted by it. You know, a simple foundation as, you know, if you had a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage, you know, at a three percent rate, um, your payment might have been around three thousand um, dollars a month, 
and now $500,000 mortgage at a five and a half, six percent rate might be 4,500 to 15,000, uh, 5,000 a month. So, if, you know, that $1,500 uh, mortgage payment inclusive, again, these things are impacted by property taxes and insurance, those kind of things that, you know, $1,500 increase in payment is going to impact your ability to get the mortgage and it's going to provide some level of compression and disposable income for a household. Uh, and that same strategy needs to apply when you're buying a capital equipment, that same strategy or thought process needs to apply when you're buying uh, a practice, when you're doing a de novo for a practice. So essentially, if you're borrowing cost of capital two years ago at three and a half percent on a commercial loan or 4% on a commercial loan um, and a 10-year loan, let's say on a $500,000, your payment is around $5,500, you know, $5,700 per month. And today, that same $500,000 loan, let's say it's at five and a half, six percent um, you know, your, your you know, payments might be closer to, you know, $6,000, uh, $6,100. So, you know, you have a five to $600, almost a 10% improvement in your monthly payment on a 10-year loan, right? So I think just people need to understand that that's, it's there. These are things, functionality things that are going to help uh, um, uh, taper uh, some level of consumer spending, so that, that some level of consumer spending is going to impact the CPI index and inflation overall. And that's probably the, some of the goals of the, uh, of the Federal Reserve. But I think you know, from a client's perspective, we need to be thinking about, okay, you know, what is the increased cost of capital uh, going to mean to how we buy? Uh, and that's very important. It's not that you don't buy. It's not that you don't make those decisions. If you're going to buy a practice two years ago because it made good economic sense or de novo two years ago because it made good economic sense, I mean, uh, for me, you know, an extra 2% in the interest rate, that's not a, 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 a discouraging factor to move forward with the decision. I think if uh, the audience members that we have that are you know, in a good leverage position going into this market, good cash reserves going into this market in the 2023, 2024 market, very similar to the 2020 market where we saw significant growth in the market. There was sell-side advisory, a, a transactional work. Um, I think the, the the market may be shifting a little bit where you know you can see a lot of uh, uh, investments into growth and acquisitions from the group practice space, um, you know, focusing on same store improvement. Obviously, as cost of capital is going up, so you know, focusing on same store improvement and you know, buying practices, you know, with better structure, better valuations things like that. Uh, but I think definitely moving forward, people need to be understanding what does a rising rate of ca capital mean to them? Still move forward to the decisions that make sense, but understand the, 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 uh, the increase in rate, what that means to their capital and cash flow. Yeah, I, I think uh, all points well taken. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to sit there and think like, okay, if you pay too much attention to the news, then maybe it's time to put your head in the sand and just stop all economic activity. Like the, the cost of funds is going up too quickly. It, it dropped just as quickly heading into, um, heading into COVID and, and with good reason. So, um, you know, we're, the news would never tell you, the nightly news would never tell you that, you know, things are returning to normal from a lending rate context, um, because that doesn't, 
that doesn't sell eyeballs, that doesn't sell viewers, that doesn't sell subscriptions and things like that. So um, it's not in their interest to to talk about what's normal versus what's abnormal. You make a good case that you know what we've lived through in the last couple of years has been very abnormal. Before we before we leave the topic around the impact of borrowing and and purchasing power and some of those that you you touched on before, uh, let's maybe just take a second and talk about. I guess this is more speculative, but how this actually might impact private equity groups. They, you know, play a large role in our world right now um, and are a catalyst for a lot of the M&A activity that happens. And we all know that private equity backed businesses, be they group dental practices or otherwise, are are borrowing money um, uh, to get transactions done. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of times that money isn't an interest only type of a loan structure. So, you know, when you when you have rising cost of funds, it's going to impact some of them differently than others. Do you want to take a second and just talk about the world of private equity for a second and maybe speculate on what we might see in some of that? Uh, sure. So, I mean, obviously, you know, our firm provides uh, sell side advisory um, and as we've said in our previous podcast, podcast, you know, don't try to time the market. And let's work through a process when you're ready to find a partner. Um, and I think that's very important because if you're if you're doing it just for economic reasons or if you, you say, okay, I just want now is the best time to uh, sell. And I think, you know, you know, I've said in the past, you know, where I, I, I see communication out there that always says now is the best time to sell. I mean, I just don't know how statistically every day can be the best time to sell. So I think the the right time to sell or right time to find a partner, really, that's probably the better uh, the word around it is when you're ready to have a partner and say, I need a partner to help me grow. I need a partner to help me manage things. Uh, I need a partner, dot, dot, dot. I think those are things that, you know, all of our audience members need to be thinking about. And then the economic outcome, you know, will will be structured in a way that allows you to achieve your goals um, and make sure that it's relative to what the market conditions are um, and things like that. So, you know, I think same decision process that goes through, uh, for you know, from a doctor's lens, when they're looking to grow and then make an acquisition decisions, I think uh, you know the private equity world obviously they have significant amount of equity capital from their limited partnerships, but you know private equity firms do go out and borrow capital through either sponsored finance group of a bank or non-bank lender or middle market institution that does sponsor finance, um, and those cost of capital just to kind of give you relative cost of capital for those things, you know they can be 600, 700 basis points above a LIBOR index, depending on the index they're using, or just to kind of keep things simple, they could be 600 basis points above the five-year treasury, 700 basis points above the five-year treasury and or higher. So their, their cost of capital can very easily as in, in, in this rising rate market can reach double digits out there and might just be interest only uh, structures, you know, with a five-year balloon, things like that, or seven-year balloon. So if you think about it, you know, if a private equity firm is deploying you know, 100 to $150 million in equity into a transaction over a three-year horizon or five-year horizon. And then they're borrowing another $100 $150 million in, uh, in sponsored in a, in a debt capital that's amortized, you know, interest only over the five years. And, you know, it ends up being, you know, 600, 700 basis points above the five-year treasury. And they deploy $100 million, just, just let's say in, in one of the years, you know, their, their interest is going to be roughly around $11 million, approximately, assuming the rate was 11% average index for the for the full yield, um, $11 million in interest payments versus two years ago, it might have been, 
you know, you know, the five-year Treasury, you know, a couple of years ago was, you know, just about a quarter percent, um, and that would have been maybe, you know, around seven and a quarter, seven and a half percent. So that three percent increase, four four percent increase, really, uh, approximately, is almost a four million dollar cost of capital increase uh, for them. Again, on a hundred million dollars of deployed capital through sponsored finance or debt capital. Um, so I think the private equity uh, firms uh, will have to look at um, the, the 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 supply pool available, which is the you know the doctors looking to find a good partner for them. The private equity firms will have to look at their growth strategy. Some may be doing de novo, some may be doing acquisitions, some may shift downstream on um, a smaller EBITDA deal. Some may go upstream on EBITDA deals because of smaller EBITDA deals with integration cost and growth strategy may be too expensive. So these are decisions that I think private equity firms uh, are going to have to consider in their growth strategy as they go and, and how they, you know, they, they uh, invest into, you know, different sizes of platforms as they go. But I think, you know, yes, supply and demand that, you know, age old rule of economics obviously, obviously will play, um, you know, from, from so far, you know, you know, talking to a lot of the, you know, firms out there, you know, there's a lower supply side uh, of supply pool out there. So I think that's going to continue to hold demand in place. And I think the ultimate equalizer of where the, the valuations will be really is going to be this cost of capital going into it. Again, that doesn't mean, you know, you kind of, you don't find a partner, you don't transact on it because think about it this way. You know, if you do partner with the right firm today, you know, we get you the right structure, you know, you still are getting into a company that has going to have more methodical growth and still get good returns in the space. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, similar to our doctors, private equity firms will have to be a little bit more deliberative as far as how they deploy capital and what their cost of capital means to any uh, uh, letters of intent or off- offers uh, that are making the space. Excellent. Good stuff. Great synopsis there. Um, so uh, I mentioned federal funds rate at the outset, you know, and, and tried to put some of that in context. I think it's probably... Um, a worthy discussion at this point um, to to maybe even go more micro here, or may, let's go more fundamental. How about that? And um, talk about how banks actually borrow money, you know, um, because almost all of our clients are using bank funds to grow, uh, and it's important to understand. Uh, mechanically, how banks borrow money, and not just how they make decisions. But you know, I, I mentioned before that the federal funds rate uh, as of today was 1.58%, and pre-COVID, it was that actual same number. I happened to stumble across that on the chart, and and even I'm bright enough to figure that one out. Well, that being said, you know, when COVID hit and they they slashed the the borrowing rates, you know, you saw in March of 2020, federal funds rate was about 0.25%. Today, it's about 1.75%. So that's 150 basis points in two years. That's a lot. But what does that necessarily mean? How do how, you want to take our audience like through some fundamentals here on how banks actually borrow money? Uh, yes. Um, so <clears throat> I think if you go to the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve, and the meetings they had back in 2020, you'll see the frequency actually increase in quarter one, because I think the Federal Reserve started to see, um, you know, COVID become a bigger impact, and so they actually had a meeting early March, and then they had an emergency meeting middle of March of 2020 to kind of address the downshift in the cost of capital. 
So let, let's talk about the, you know, as you said, um, you know, we see this news, the, 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 the prime's going to go up on the Wall Street Journal and all these things. Uh, is that, how is that going to impact the average consumer? So, so if everybody focuses on prime, and I think that's okay. And if you um, generally think in consumer spending, prime is very relevant. Because if you look at your credit card um, uh, merchant processing, uh, I'm sorry, credit card um, uh, cost of capital, it, they will say prime plus five, prime plus eight, prime plus 10, depending on the, the type of credit card you have. And then they'll give you the APR of 18% or 11% or 24%, depending on the credit card you have. So I think the, the increase in prime has a significant impact on how consumer spending happens because you know, as people use credit cards, that impacts. Uh, the use of Prime uh, also has an impact on second uh, second mortgage products because usually second mortgage products are tied to Prime Plus XYZ. In the commercial lending space, if majority of products in the commercial lending space are tied to, uh, which is uh, when they offer you a business line of credit um, and or, or an operating line of credit, they say Prime Plus One, Prime Plus Two, Prime Plus Zero, Prime Plus Minus Half, depending on the institution you're going with. Um, so I think, again, so all those products are tied to Prime. That's not how the bank borrows money. So the bank borrows money, uh, uh, if and when they choose to, from the Federal Reserves. And so it's called the Fed's overnight rate or Fed's funds rate. Um, and that's really what the bank borrows at. And I think, as you said, you know, a couple of years ago, um, it, you know, it was around uh, March of 2020, it was 0.25%. That was uh, the approximate goal they were going for. And then just about now, July 1st, it was just uh, uh, at 0.09%. And today it's 1.58%. So when the Fed funds rate went down to almost, let's call it zero, it was almost free money for the banks. And so they were able to reduce their margin, reduce their, uh, maintain their spread, yet pass that, you know, some of that savings on to the, to the end consumer. And that resulted in, and uh, you know people borrowing at two and a half, three and a half percent. So, but the 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 bank their margin was three percent, and you know a minimum. And uh, now their margin is still three percent at least. So your your cost of capital might be four and a half percent, might be five and a half percent on a, on a Fed's funds rate. But that's not. We're going to go through a different uh, pricing index. Um, and you might say, okay, is the bank making more money? I think the bank you know is going to try to keep their margin as is. And I think most banks, as we go into 2023, 2024, you know, we've seen news from uh, different banks. Goldman Sachs uh, uh, talk about their loss reserves. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase talk about the loss reserves. I think a lot of the major um, um, uh, top 25 banks are are putting in extra cash and cash reserves for loss provisions. Um, and either they've already put that money in loss reserves through the transactions they lent on before. If not, as they're making new loans, they may try to improve their spread to put in additional capital and loss reserves. Uh, so I, I do think you're going to see a, a multitude of effects, which is one is, you know, cost of capital the, uh, to the, the client's going to go up, has gone up. Average yield for a traditional uh, commercial transaction for non-real estate backers probably around, you know, four, seven, five to five and a half percent. And middle market kind of goes up, you know, it's not probably closer to, Nine percent to eleven uh, percent, depending on a non-bank lender, um, and but I do think I see banks putting more uh, capital and cap uh, in loss reserves. But that's how banks borrow money. That does not mean that's how banks price your deal. But that's how, essentially how banks borrow money today. 
Great uh, deep dive with that. That is uh, super valuable to the uh, to the listeners out there, uh, and probably worth rewinding the tape and, and listening again for sure. Now you mentioned right there at the tail end, uh, it's different borrowing versus the way they price deals. Do you want to dig into some of that a little bit more on pricing? Uh, sure. So we'll just use one index, and there's a lot of indexes depending on the product, depending on the mortgage. Um, so you, you, you know, I, mean, I think a lot of people start to correlate cost of capital to mortgages, right? I mean, I think you see housing market the last two years has been somewhat surreal. If you uh, have been have bought a house in the last 24 months, have currently have a house in construction to build, um, or maybe currently going through an acquisition process to buy a house. Uh, and so if you look at that cost of capital and you say, okay, how does that correlate directly with the Fed's fund rate and try to match it but dollar for dollar, or use the prime index and say, okay, I'm going to use the prime two years and see how's my mortgage impacted. That's not going to add, add up. And you're going to wonder why. And that's because different products use different yields um, to price the, the bank. And, and your loan agreements, if you get a mortgage or a home equity line or a car loan or a, a commercial loan, will tell you what index they're using. Um, so usually like the, uh, the mortgages that are 30-year fixed, or 20-year fixed mortgages, they'll use a 10-year treasury yields, or they might use a seven-year treasury yields to, to, to use for their pricing index. And depending on if you start taking a 7-1 ARM or a 10-1 ARM, these are uh, adjustable rate mortgages. ARM stands for adjustable rate mortgage. Um, those might be tied more to the five-year treasury yield. So I think it's, it's, it's important to understand they're not using the Fed's fund rate or, and they're not using the prime for those products. Um, some banks use LIBOR index. I mean, if you guys don't uh, remember LIBOR, it's kind of being phased out right now, but it's still kind of there. Uh, LIBOR stands for London Interbank Offered Rate. Um, and it was used heavily till about 2010, 2015-ish. And I'm, some banks still use it, but there's almost overall being phased out in, across the lending market. Uh, but in the most common one we'll kind of look at today for our podcast is going to be the five-year treasury index. Uh, a treasury yield, um, and you can you can track it on Yahoo Finance, Wall Street Journal, you know, different different indexes out there. So, um, two years ago, in July of 2020, the five-year Treasury index uh, was 0.28 percent, uh, approximately, or yield was 5.28 percent. That's July 2020. Um, in July 2021, you know, it was 0.76 percent. So it went up a little bit, have a little bit of pricing improvement, and I go into it, um, but. Two years later, the five-year treasury index is at 3.2. So you have a 300 basis points improvement in two years, uh, or let me put that, um, uh, 3%. So basis points, you know, essentially I was running another acronym for a percentage rate increase in two years um, uh, for that. And that's really when you see a lot of mortgage rates go up. And if you kind of start correlating to that, you start seeing in a cost of capital improve by three uh, percent plus, you'll see mortgage, uh, you know, commercial loan transactions that have been done at two and a half, three percent. I remember during COVID, coming out of COVID, we had some clients get, you know, cost of capital around two seven five, three percent. Um, I mean, really good, aggressive. Plus, they had the SBB, S, uh, SBA PPP funds. Um, then you had employment retention credits, and you had all those things that are available for capital. Uh, but now the same transactions. I mean, it's very common for us to see. Uh, uh, for middle market lending, pricing around low fives to even low sixes. And that's normal. And that's, again, it's, if you just use the five-year treasury index, again, different banks use different indexes. It's about 300 basis points higher than it was two years ago. 
Um, and again, the five-year treasury index, the fairly common index used in a lot of products, uh, uh, spectrums that are out there as different. Some banks use it in equipment financing to use it because again, equipment financing typically rates, uh, uh, stays around seven-year index, seven-year financing or five-year financing. So they may use five-year, they might use a three-year treasury index. So you see different things in this space or even use LIBOR. So in the commercial space, LIBOR, treasury index, those are pretty uh, common index to be used. And the treasury index may matter um, uh, depending on the term you're taking and the fixed rate you're taking. Another product that's out there that probably don't need to go through that today, the swap rate index products, our swap yield products. Um, those have a very competitive uh, advantage in the space today as rising rate, uh, rate of capital goes up. Um, so it could help some of our clients position really well if you take a swap rate product. Uh, there are complexities to it that we advise our clients to kind of think through. Uh, they can have downside effects. In a rising rate market, it could be very good. You know, Some of our clients took swap rate products a few years ago, uh, pre-COVID, uh, uh, during the COVID, uh, refinancing was punitive. Now coming out of it, you know, refinancing uh, can actually be more attractive for them because in a swap rate product, depending on what your lock-in rate was, your lock-out rate was, amazingly enough, the bank may write you a check to leave the relationship. So it's actually uh, pretty unique. It's one of those things usually we're used to paying a bank when we leave the relationship. Uh, the swap rate products is actually a product where the bank may pay you to leave the relationship. Um, so it's, uh, so again, different indexes, different product, but um, you know, cost of capital across the board has gone up a lot. Yeah, so uh, right there toward the end of that uh, piece, you, you touched on a couple of things. And one, um, we're talking about rising interest rates here, and pro we're probably not done with that. So there's, there's going to be a further increase in the cost of capital to come. Who knows what it's going to be? Different speculation about that. Um, but suffice to say, we, we all believe there's, there's another round coming. You also you know, dentists, uh, banks love lending money to dentists. They never default. I mean, the credit risk is, for all intents and purposes, zero. But, I mean, it's dirt cheap cost of funds when you're buying or building your, your first practice or probably even your second one. That being said, you know, you touched on middle market lending before, lower middle market lending. And it, lower middle market lending it carries a, a premium uh, price point above traditional retail lending that everybody associates cost of capital with. And there's a lot of uh, compelling reasons to, uh, uh, to, to leave a retail type of a lender in favor of a lower middle market to middle market lender. We're going to do a bunch of series. We're going to do a bunch on that in this series for sure. Um, but let's just talk about people who are evaluating their growth prospects going forward and they think they're in a they're in a good ge geographic market they think it's a good point in time they're building a great business there're going to be opportunities to buy or build new locations and expand the footprint you know regardless of what's happening at a macro level these are people these are entrepreneurs who are are very um optimistic about the years to come and they want to continue to grow in order to do that, they're probably going to have to leave their retail lenders and have uh, a more uh, a lender who's more committed to fund their vision going forward, to, to fund their business plan. And with that, it's probably going to carry, you know, uh, an increase in the cost of funding, um, a couple hundred basis points probably. And you tack on to that, 
rising rates in and of themselves organically, if you will. Uh, how does somebody really, you know, get comfortable changing that existing relationship where capital has been pretty cheap and pretty available? And how do they how do they make that mindset shift from from leaving that established relationship to a relationship where they're going to be paying a lot more uh, in terms of cost of capital going forward for the cost of funding? How do they get there? Sure. So let's kind of um, break that down, if you don't mind, Parent, in a, in a couple of components. So one is, let's say you're happy with your relationship. Um, and, you know, you're doing one project every two, three years, and you don't really need a true middle market lender or credit credit facility to grow your business in a more aggressive path. Uh, so, you know, you might have done a transaction with the bank two years ago, that rate might be 3%. You know, you're coming back for another de novo or acquisition. Now the rate 6%. Uh, sure, if you want to you know, shop the loan and save 25 basis points or 0.25%, um, uh, you know, go through that process and evaluate if that's the right choice for you. The, the truth is that, that same $500,000 transaction is going to be priced six dollars $700 more um, if that rate's 3% higher and $500,000 on a 10-year loan. Um, so first of all, I think it's important to understand you know, when you're spending an extra, the, the, the product just from early in the podcast, Costing you five to seven hundred dollars more, you know. Understand what? How? How is that decision process for you moving forward uh, have to make sense? So, if let's say seven hundred dollars more, that's eighty four dollars uh, additional interest expense or the same cost of capital. You know, if you're doing a de novo, and I have to understand the cost structure of capital equipment, construction, and one one may argue, hey, lumber's gone down by 40 percent in the last uh, six months, so construction costs might be going down, might be offset instead of borrowing five hundred, you might be borrowing four fifty. Again, those things are important to take into consideration. Um, but if you can't reduce save, uh, save on on capital expenditure or construction or anything else, and it is going to cost you an extra seven hundred dollars per month, eighty four dollars per year, then I I think you need to understand. You know, what is your revenue going to goal going to be at the end of year one? What is your EBITDA goal going to be at the end of year one? And these are things that, you know, we're working on the consulting side and really understand what that impact needs to be in year two, year three, year four. Okay. So I think if you're happy with the relationship, just understand that uh, on um, as far as move forward basis, uh, how, to, how to look at your uh, economic decisions. Now, still take, now take that same philosophy and say, okay, you're going to, um, you want to grow by six locations per year or do two to $3 million in acquisitions per year. And you currently have a $5 million facility or $3 million facility with your local bank. Um, and you know every time you go in, it's a three to six month credit process with them. Um, and that's really, if you, if you have that decision process with your bank, um, you know, it's not going to improve over the next 12, 24 months. And let me kind of sh- sh- talk to you why I just, maybe about four minutes ago, five minutes ago, Talked about the comments from J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and another uh, other banks, top 25 banks uh, in the U.S., where more and more banks are putting more and more capital into loss reserves. And what that means is banks are forecasting an improvement in the charge-offs or losses. And let me—I've said the word improvement a lot in this podcast. Uh, improvement is not a good thing. It usually means improvement in rate means higher interest rate. Improvement in loss reserves mean higher losses. Um, so when that happens, when banks take higher losses or they put more loss reserves in place, there's usually a, a credit culture that um, is going to slow down a bit um, and is going to be more deliberate, more methodical, 
And if you don't have the right bank partner today and in, in going into this in July, 2022, I can assure you in the next 12 to 24 months, that partner is going to not look better over the next 12, 24 months because credit processes will become more conservative if we're going into a recession and or if we don't go into a recession, if cost of capital goes up and it impacts financial performance on the transactions they made in 2020 and 2021, okay? Because that's going to start to hit the balance sheet going into Q3, Q4, and even next year. So when that happens, you know the credit risk models for a lot of these banks will become more conservative. But if you're, again, going back to if you have a three, six-month credit process with the bank, uh, you're going to lose on an acquisition to a private equity firm. Uh, because if the banks, their sponsor bank, uh, capital lender is typically have a facility with them, they can close and deal in 90 days and six months. And even if the bank's too slow, they can, we, we have a lot of uh, sell side partners we work with, uh, or uh, private equity partners we work with, um, that can close on deals in 60 days. In fact, we've done them in 60 days. Um, so they can just put more equity into the deal and say, hey, we'll get, your, get our money back from the bank. So I think for people that are looking to be um, the the buyers in the space or buy a practice in space, and they're going to look and say, okay, we want to uh, uh, take this opportunity to grow our business. If you don't have the right capital partner, you're going to be left behind in that space. So that's one. Two, I think the if you don't have the right capital partner today, and you might be comfortable exercising a three to six month credit process today, at some point that that bank will stop lending or that process will become so painful where you're going to leave. And the question just is, if you got a transaction with them in 2020 or 2021 at 3.5% or 3%, whatever that transaction was, are you, are you comfortable refinancing them today at a 5.5% rate? Or will you be, and I, I will say the word will you, it's a very uh, forward-looking uh, statement, will you be refinancing them in 2023, 24 at a potential six to 7%. And when you refinance them now, unless your, your deployed capital is $3 million or $5 million, that three to $5 million, yes, you shouldn't take a you know, 3% rate of increase. So on a $5 million, you know, that's an extra $150,000 um, in uh, interest um, the payments that you're making. That's a, that's a lot of money, $10,000 more uh, per month, over $10,000 more per month. Or let's say you go from $5 million to $7 million, slowly growing with that company next year and eventually running out of capital, and then taking that $7 million and refinancing that at 7%. You know, that's you know, effectively you know, 4% higher than you are today. That's effectively $280,000 more in cost of capital. So now your monthly cost of capital went up by twenty to $23,000 per month by waiting a year. And not, and not only that it uh, go up by twenty dollars to $23,000 by waiting a year, assuming the rate is 7% a year from now, you, you, know, it, you might have impacted some of the transactions you could have closed on. So I think it's really important for you know, our audience members to start thinking and say, okay, number one, do I, you know, is my capital structure correct? So no different than the statement that, that we tell our audience member, don't uh, go through a capital event through a sell side advisory with us or any party unless you're ready for a right partner. Same process. And if you're going to engage us to find you a middle market institution, you know, let's discuss your growth strategy. You know, we may recommend to you and say, hey, I think your current bank's good. Um, you're doing one every two years. You don't need us. 
okay? Or just stay with that bank and we can just kind of manage that process as you grow. But if you're doing deploying two to five or two to $10 million in capital per year, okay? And let's say two to five million or two to 10 million this year, and then probably have plans to increase that cadence moving forward. Um, then I think that you have to re- ask the question, okay, if I refinance now on a $5 million transaction, okay, I'm going to pay an extra $150,000 in cost of capital over $12,000 per month in interest uh, uh, payments. What am I getting in return for making that uh, uh, relationship change? Can I acquire cost of capital improved by $150,000? Can I acquire an additional half a million to seven fifty dollars in EBITDA? Can I grow faster where through a de novo, I can add four to $5 million in revenue where I can get to the 550 to 750 in EBITDA? Those are the decisions that uh, helped you substantiate that relationship change. But if you're doing one every two years, it probably doesn't make sense. You know, I think it's okay to kind of wait it out and be methodical with your lender and just let your newer transaction be at a higher cost of capital. Uh, but I think I would really ask people to revisit their business plan, look at where their business will be the next three to five years, look at their deployed capital needs. Again, look at a forward-looking deployed capital needs. You know, I don't know if uh, many of our audience members are doing projections, but if you're doing projections in your business, start looking at forward-looking revenue, forward-looking EBITDA, look at your capital structure today and say, okay, what is my forward-looking 12, 24, 36-month 20, uh, uh, capital need? And what does that look like? And if I can't execute on that, Strategy. What does that mean to me? And I'll kind of kind of pause after this statement, uh, Aaron. But I mean, I think a lot of bankers tell people, "And I got you covered. We're with you. We don't have a lending limit. You know, we can continue to grow with you. Uh, just stay in there. We love the relationship. We, yes, they love the uh, merchant processing fee income. They love the e, uh, uh, ACH um, uh, or checks coming in, check scanner revenue that comes in where they. Uh, charge your revenue for check processing. Yes, they like the interest income. Yes, they love the bank fees that they're making. That's what they like. They, I mean, that's what the banks in the business of. I think, and they should earn that. They should realize all those things. You think you have to ask the question, are they committed to the relationship with you to the same level you're committed to the relationship with them? Is there a contractual agreement in front of you that says, we're going to help you grow? And here's our facility in front of you. And that could be in a committed guidance line. It could be in an uncommitted guidance line. There's different pros and cons to each of those things. But if you don't have a, a guidance line of credit or facility to grow as you're, and you have an aggressive plan the next from 2022 to 2027, 28, then you know, I think it's a very, very important to understand, you know, uh, uh, is there the bank you're with today, are they the right bank? Very, very well said. All right, I, I'm, I'm going to re, uh, reiterate the point here. If you were um, on the treadmill and you were in a sprint session or something and you missed the last couple of minutes that DeWalker was talking about, rewind the tape. This is the most important part of this podcast that he just went into because we're going to talk a little bit in a second on forward-looking things, but l- let's just hammer the point home here, Okay. If you have a relatively aggressive growth strategy, and I would define that by anything greater than um, buying or building a practice every other year. If you plan to move faster than that, now is the absolute time to reevaluate the existing relationship. And if you have it in writing, how far they will go and the amount of the credit facility they're willing to extend to you, you're 
you're probably in pretty good standing. If you want us to put our eyes on it, DeWalker can do that. But for those that only have something verbal from a relationship manager, you need to question that relationship because it's not committed at that point. Going forward, rates more than likely are going to to have further increases coming. We are not going back to the days of uh, a federal funds rate of 0.09% anytime soon without some sort of an economic calamity, again, at a global level. And let's hope we don't hit that. So you need to think about your next five years of growth strategy relative to the increase in the cost of funds. And if it continues to go up, you're better off locking in that commitment right here, right now, today. There is a lot of urgency to figure out what your business plan is of the coming five to 10 years, what you think your capital needs will be for that same period, and evaluate your relationship with your existing lender as if your business plan depends on it, because it absolutely does. We can't underscore this any more than he just did in about five to 10 minutes. So if he went through that too quickly, or if you were looking at your phone or doing something else, rewind the tape, go back to, and listen to what DeWalker just said, because it's critically important. All right, so let's, uh, let's take one more piece of this uh, and let's talk structure. Um, you know, we talk structure of uh, refinancing and growth capital. Um, when we, you hear us say structure matters more than price, we say that in, in transactions and deals, but we also mean it in terms of um, debt recapitalization, growth capital, and, and guidance lines as well. Do you want to unpack the structure piece um, for the audience here? Uh, sure. So I, I think, uh, you know, I, I kind of uh, alluded a little bit, you know, so, you know, why switch, right? Why pay the extra 3% or uh, whatever that cost of capital, even if it's five or seven percent, you know, why pay the extra cost of capital to to make the change? Um, I think that it really comes down to what are you getting in return. And one of the things we focus on is a guidance line of facility. Uh, we look at covenants, reporting covenants that are going to be uh, out there. We actually help our clients you know, prep for the reporting covenants. And, okay, moving forward, we need to be thinking about this in our covenants. So you know, we've moved a lot of our clients from cash basis to accrual, accrual to reviewed reviewed to audited. Um, and those are different the compliance things or accounting things that have to go through to get to the right financial reporting that the bank needs. Um, but also in regards to, I think the key things becomes the facility. So yeah, I think we're gonna have an audience member here on the next 30 days or one of our clients in the next 30 days. And you know, you know, they'll break down you know, what uh, was able to, what we were able to achieve for them and what's gonna allow them to do, this is a doctor owned group, it's going to allow them to act, be, be the aggregator of the market um, and go out and make it a doctor-owned group um, and, and compete with the, you know, the top 25 DSOs in the space um, and really be able to go from a doctor's lens to another practicing doctor or a not practicing doctor that's a smaller group where the doctors transition him or herself out of the, out of the chair um, and go to them and say, hey, you know, join our company and be part of our success and let us show you what we're building in our company. And I think there's a, a lot of our audience members that are building doctor-owned groups or DSOs, you know, they have that vision, they have that philosophy. I think the hardest thing for them is to want, you know, there's operational things we could talk about integration-wise, but also in the, in the financial capital-wise, they may, they, they, you know, they have to go through that 90-day, six-month process to be able to 
uh, acquire. And you know, rightfully so, a, a selling doctor that is talking to a top 25 DSO might be talking to a doctor group and say, you know what, I think I can close with this bigger group in 90 days or four months. Um, and I don't have any assurance with you from your lens. You're, you're going through financing and that we will close in four months or six months. And I think just that ability, I think, is, is part of the structure thing when you're thinking about. Also, I mean, I think it puts the ultimate ownership on the internal team for operations because now our principal clients can go to their operations team and say, hey, I have the capital. You know, we can go out and do de novos or acquisitions in this geography. Uh, here's the covenants we need to perform by for our bank that has been negotiated by Polaris. And is there a reason we can't hit that? And that really allows a really good conversation, accountability, performance, and what does your accounting or your operations team need to have that accountability to execute on the strategy and the vision that you have laid out? So, you know, we talk about things that are um, um, uh, Im impactful to building a business and it's, uh, you know, one's going to be human capital, right? Which is recruiting. We talk about associate equity, doctor recruitment, things like that. There's, but there also is financing capital. You, you know, we, you know, this process removes that restriction and puts the only two variables impacting your growth is now going to be um, uh, the people process aspect of it. Do you have the right people? Do you have a good process to integrate? And human capital, right? Which is um, goes back to the, the people's side, which is, are you able to recruit doctors? Are you able to recruit hygienists, dental assistant, team leaders, office managers, all those things to create the right culture environment to continue to grow. So I think this, the, having that structure of a credit facility uh, or a guidance facility uh, you know, is, is really going to be impactful for doctor-owned groups and even you know, non-doctor-owned groups because we're starting to do a lot of middle market lending uh, for sponsor finance, things like that, that allow people to start thinking about, hey, you know, I'm a, I must, you know, have a private equity group that has $100 million. You know, I want to be able to go into this market more aggressively. Is my capital structure correct? And I think those people can now start to look at 50, 100, $150 million capital solutions or even greater as they aggregate the space from a private equity lens. Yeah, for, for our clients, our, our target core client, I mean, the, the credit facility is the hunting license, right? I mean, that is the um, committed capital typically set aside for them to execute their growth strategy. It's like having conditional pre-approval um, for uh, for making acquisitions. And it's a completely different ball game. It's a game changer um, versus the way people traditionally have gone about, you know, finding the practice they want to buy, negotiating the deal, and then figuring out if the bank will fund it. Um, that's that's not the best way to uh, uh, to execute your growth strategy. So that's why we say structure beats price almost every single time. So we're gonna we're gonna conclude today's podcast on uh, I hope what won't be a um, pessimistic look toward things. Let's try to keep this as positive as we can. Um, but. Restructuring your capital uh, and your commitments right now is incredibly important. And I, we don't want to prognosticate about a looming recession. Uh, the word recession is out there. Um, let's hope that it doesn't come to that. Um, keep our fingers crossed that it won't. But we also need to be prudent. Um, and, and this is uh, when, when things like a recession potentially hit, it could also create some opportunities for businesses that are positioned the right way. And DeWalker, I, I think back uh, when we were at the prior company and we were um, heading into 
what became a full-blown global shutdown. Uh, and, and if memory serves me correct, you squeezed a recapitalization, a restructure in right under the wire for a client literally less than a week before the globe shut down. And it was frantic to get that deal done because I think you had a better feeling than anybody else have after having lived through uh, 08 and 09, uh, what happens to banks uh, in a in a severe downturn, be it recession, global pandemic, housing collapse, anything like that. You kind of live through that from the lens of being a banker and going through that. And our client that we got the deal done, uh, literally at the 12th hour, was the beneficiary of that. So let's let's try not to say that the sky is falling, that we're destined for a recession. Let's hope that we're not. But let's drive the point home that now is the time, if you're considering this, to evaluate your relationships, to look at your growth strategy, to get some dry powder, and depending on what happens at a, at a larger economic level in the coming months uh, and over the course of balance of the year, um, let, let's see this as a, a growth opportunity potentially for expansion. So you want to take this in terms of maybe uh, what might happen in the future and, and how banks uh, make decisions around that? Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think we need to go into or the world ending. And um, I, I don't view a forward-looking outcome as um, um, d- down, you know, or, or a, a, a negative aspect. I, I, look, I ask the question, you know, and that we ask our clients the question, how are we best prepared for it, right? So I think if you go back to the 2008 economic uh, 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 downturn, um, you know, obviously, the credit market from 2009 to 11 was very precarious, uh, and the fact that a lot, a lot of conservative lending. I think banks snapped back really conservatively. Uh, I mean, we're not going to go into what you know with the, the lending policies um, um, uh, correct or not, but I think overall the the, the lending market snapped back very conservatively, uh, and it took a while for the lending markets to kind of open up again. It took about you know I think at least three years four years to kind of start seeing that lending market kind of equalize a little bit. Um, and uh, the market, you know, the lending asset pool started to grow in a regular manner. And similar to that in 2020, I think, you know, we were able to squeeze a client in literally a week before where a lot of the banks were starting to shut down due to COVID reposition. One, shut down due to COVID because it, they it, they weren't sure if the business will still be functioning. Wanted to wait for some guidance from the Federal Reserve and the federal government. And that, that became PPP funds, and then you know things started to come back around in some states, July, August. So you know I think you know whenever you have that kind of possession, and you had a, uh, the federal government react, the banks waited for their reaction, and some banks weren't even lending you know, all the way into 2021 from from in the healthcare space. Um, so I think when we start looking at 2023. Um, you know, I'm not going to look and say we're going to go into a recession, and, and if it happens, it happens. Um, that might be one of the outcomes through the process over the next um, 12 months. Uh, but I think that our audience members need to really understand, you know, if and if if that happens, how are they positioned for it? And I think that's really the question that to have. You know, when we were talking about uh, in our previous company coming out of COVID or going into COVID, and we talked about. Capital cash and you know, cash and balance sheet was king. 
And we, you know, I think some of our clients got, you know, previous company got one um, um, PPP, some got two, some got ERCs. I think you saw significant cash improvement. Uh, obviously, the cost of labor went up and all these things that people have to manage through. Um, but I think that the question over the next 12 to 18 months really will come down to cash and balance sheet as one. And I think people need to start thinking about that and say, okay, how are we positioned well? And I think we're working that with a lot of our clients. Uh, we're having those conversations now about 2023 and how to reallocate cash positions. Um, the second thing that we need to be thinking about, you know, we talked earlier about is cost of capital uh, and, and, and what that might mean. The second thing we need to be thinking about uh, is, you know, if and when um, we do start to see, um, you know, a large level of unemployment happening, or we start to see the cost of capital catching up with some of the credit practices for the, the last three, four years, and um, that start to hit the, the bank's risk reserves, a risk uh, uh, ratios, and they have the, uh, a higher than average or predicted default rate or charge-off rate, really charge-off, not default defaults, lead to charge-offs, um, then that's going to result in the tightening of the belt, as they say, in the credit, uh, credit box. So when that happens, and I'll give you from uh, from a simple consumer uh, lens, um, you know, if if today you could get go out and get a five hundred thousand dollar loan, and you know put five percent down plus closing costs, and you had an eight hundred credit score, and you know hypothetically a year down the road you went back for the same thing, you know again we talked about cost of capital improving, the bank may require ten percent down versus five percent. Their debt to income ratio might be different that they're using to qualify for your mortgage. There's going to be credit policy changes going into next year. And so in the commercial world, obviously, things are a lot more complicated. I'm just trying to give you the mortgage side of it because I think people can relate to that side because we might get a home equity, buy a house, things like that. So I think that credit box, if we start to see higher delinquency rates, if we start to see higher charge-off rate, like some of the top 25 banks have done, I think we're going to see at that point a more conservative credit uh, box in the traditional lending market. Now, that's why you know when we kind of go to these credit facilities, if we can negotiate those credit facilities today and make sure those covenants are performing today and you know, get our bank partners to or non-bank partners to commit to those covenants, then I think we're, our clients are in a very good position because they're not subjected to the new credit guidelines that come out in 2023. And they're protected because some of these facilities are annual renewal. Some of these facilities are two-year renewals. And, you know, the covenant, and they can go to the bank and say, every covenant you've laid out for me, we have passed and we'd like to renew because these are annually renewing facilities as long as the covenants are met. And we're negotiating those covenants in 2021 or 2022. I think... That's very important as you start thinking about 2023, 2024, is what are the covenants you're subjected to? So I think a lot of people are looking at the pricing they're subjected to. We focus a lot of the covenants you're subjected to and what does that allow you to do as a principle of your business when you start thinking about your forward uh, uh, growth strategy? Ding, ding, ding. That's it right there. I mean, that's uh, in a nutshell, the people in the audience just got a masterclass on borrowing, lending, and getting their uh, their capital commitments straight in a rising rate environment on how to execute on M&A when you know, things might turn down a bit for a lot of practices and you're in a, a, an acquisition mode. 
that that type of a potential downturn can yield a lot of great opportunity if you have all this stuff straight going into it. That's the urgency. That's that's really the importance behind us putting this podcast together today. Um, and it has uh, been a lot of information. We're we're over. I think we're over an hour on recording right now. And y'all know we usually go less than thirty minutes. But when DeWalker and I were trying to scope this one out and you know figure out how to break it up, it was just too important to put it into two episodes. So you got the whole damn thing in one fell swoop. I encourage you to go back and and listen to different parts of it because this is critically important at this state of uh, where we are in the overall economy. So, DeWalker. Uh, you know, I hadn't had you on the podcast in a while. And to come back on an episode like this is uh, is pretty big. I think it's a mic dropping moment for you. So if you do want to spike the football or something like that, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame you at all. But really appreciate you uh, joining me today. Thanks for being on the show, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. There'll be more great information to come relative to um, capital structures, capital needs, growth capital uh, how to think through more of it. We've talked about some of this on the podcast up to this point, but suffice to say, uh, today was uh, a tour de force. So I, I hope you got a lot out of it. Uh, I really do. And obviously, I hope you're uh, you're finding everything we do to be educational. Uh, if you do have questions on anything we covered today, uh, feel free to drop me an email directly uh, at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. You can reach DeWalker at DeWalker at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com, and that's D-I-W-A-K-A-R. We will probably also link in the show notes um, uh, DeWalker's uh, book a meeting calendar, where if you've got questions on your capital structure, um, things to consider, points to review, uh, questions to ask, anything like that. If you can book a call directly with him to get some of that evaluated, I encourage you to do that. Um, it's an important time and uh, he is a tremendous resource. Please do stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thank you all once again for joining us on the show today. That was an absolute tour de force and I'm going to be brief in my wrap up here, but I I do uh, uh, really want to encourage you to go back and listen to a lot of what uh, DeWalker covered because that was um, uh, a lot of information in a hurry. But for those of you building growth uh, groups that are growing, uh, that stuff is incredibly important right now. Um, Before I wrap up the show, I do want to mention We've got one uh, new addition to the team. We've got a number of new additions to the team coming, for that matter. Um, but one uh, in a client-facing role is John Pohl. And John is uh, joining us from the world of banking. And he is going to be working with DeWalker in our uh, growth capital solutions division. Uh, that is a lot of debt recapitalization uh, and guidance lines and things along, uh, you know, pretty much everything we talked about in today's episode, uh, John Paul is going to be helping us with. He is a former banking colleague of DeWalker's at East West Bank uh, and has vast experience in the uh, Bank of America um, practice solutions division. So he knows the world of dental. He knows the world of group dentistry. He understands how to use financing uh, to get growth strategy accomplished. And I think he's going to be a great asset to us in in that respect. Uh, So all of the things that we talked about today, uh, we are certainly expanding our capabilities in terms of manpower 
uh, here at Polaris. And I think uh, John is going to be a, a phenomenal addition to our team uh, and really do a, a lot of great work for our clients. So I wanted to say uh, welcome to him. Uh, we're glad that he's here. And I know the impact he's going to make uh, is going to be all but immediate uh, for a lot of y'all. And it will entail a lot of what you learned on today's podcast as well. So that was a tour de force, and I hope you uh, did get a lot out of it. We have seen a lot of new um, or a lot of heavy activity in terms of uh, downloads of the show recently and, and appreciate all the new members of the audience, all the subscribers, and those that find our podcast that go back and binge listen to us over the course of the last year and download all 50 episodes or however many of them are out there. I, I hope they uh, are getting a lot out of all of them. I also appreciate all the recent ratings we've gotten. We've seen a spike in the uh, the ratings increases. Um, they've all been five stars up to this point. And, and DeWalker and I are incredibly grateful about that. We put a lot of time and effort into this show. Um, I know it sometimes it doesn't come across that way, but believe it or not, we do. And uh, the ratings that y'all leave us do mean a lot. So if you haven't left us a rating, um, you know, scroll down in your podcast feed and and click on whatever rating you think is appropriate i would recommend five stars but um you know we we appreciate that uh and obviously it helps us with seo and show rankings and everything else too so once again if you got questions you can feel free to submit them to me uh directly at parent at polaris healthcare partners.com uh, and if, of course, you want to find out more about us and what all we do, you can hit our website at www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.